0: Thank you, I love that song, Was i only the only one that came in a little early there a couple times, I don't know if you could hear me. Anyway, let's uh, prepare our hearts uh, to hear God speak to us through his word, so take a few moments to pray silently, ask him to remove any distractions, and to give you a heart to listen to our Lord from heaven through his written word. So I'll give you a few moments to pray silently, and then I'll open us up in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, bless you f- from deep within, as the song said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it's because of who you are. Worship is a response to who you are. And who you are is revealed on the pages of Scripture, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we behold your glory, then the response of the heart, of the believing heart, is worship. It is to bless you. It is to have our eyes lifted off from ourselves, from this world upward to you, to love you, to trust you, to delight in your grace, to rely on your strength, and to follow you wherever you may lead. And so to that end, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to teach, instruct, train us in righteousness for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, finally coming here to the end of this uh, section, uh, in verse 11, particularly this morning, and as I mentioned last week, we're here, as we talk, began last week, looking at the issue of spiritual gifts, the issue of spiritual gifts, and... God's use of them in building up the body of Christ. His use of them in our life to build us up as the church. And we began last week by noting uh, the illustrations that scripture gives of the church. And the, I, the heart of these illustrations is that there is diversity and yet unity. There is a diversity among the people of God and yet there is a unity in Christ that we share as the singular body of Christ. As those indwelled by the Holy Spirit with the same faith, faith same hope, same Lord, same baptism and so forth and so he gives pictures he gives the picture of a body he gives the picture of a house he gives the picture of the temple all of those being one and yet made up of many parts and so it is with giftedness though we have many gifts we are we display a harmony and a unity that that reflects and leads to the glory of Jesus Christ i, I want to begin this week by just noting a quote by henry ford henry ford you'll know is the the organizational genius who came up really came up with the idea of the assembly line and the mass production of cars and he said this or he's quoted as saying this coming together is a beginning keeping together is progress and working together is success coming together is a beginning keeping together is progress and working together is success and Where there is no working together, then there is no success. Where there's disunity or disharmony, then there is no success. To whatever point that someone who is a part of a team, who is a part of an organization, who is a part of a family, who is a part of anything that involves more than just yourself, what makes it a success, what brings about fruit, what leads to the end desired, is that everybody work together doing their part. Doing their part to achieve the same goal. When that isn't the case, then it brings disruption. Uh, professional sports players, if there's a, someone who's not a team player, they'll get traded. They'll go somewhere else because they are a disruption to what the coach is trying to produce among a team. A good coach, anyway, would do that and a good team owner. If there's a company and the employee is working against what the objectives are, then that employee will be fired or he'll be reprimanded because it's going against what's being uh, sought to achieve it's built into our human nature it's built into our human nature and to the very design of our our being together and working together to achieve something that we need to have a certain kind of unity and a harmony and that's especially so in the body of christ Especially so in the body of Christ. And even more so because in the body of Christ there are deeper realities than just achieving a business goal or a sports goal or whatever. There is this reality of the Holy Spirit who unites us together. And so Paul says that we are members of one another. Far beyond just being united in a common belief, we are united by a common God who indwells each of us and involves our lives and so intertwines them that whatever happens with one affects everybody. So Paul gave the illustration in 1 Corinthians 12. When one member is honored, then all are honored. When one is dishonored, then all are dishonored. Wherever there is weakness in the body or wherever there, wherever there is a failure to work towards the same goal or to work together according to the Spirit's work within us. Then to that degree, the glory of Christ and the health of the body and the joy of the body is diminished. Diminished. And so we looked at that in several places. Let me just mention one to you. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says this. Ephesians chapter 4. He says, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up, of itself in love and so that is then the necessary element of a healthy church and of a growing church and of a maturing church is that each person who is a part of that church is functioning as god has designed them to function within the body and so that's where peter points us this morning so let me read just first peter chapter four and i'm actually going to begin in verse seven and read down to verse eleven although we'll be looking specifically at verse eleven And beginning in verse 7, because that's sort of ahead of this final little section here. Namely, that what does life look like living in light of the end? So beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint... As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I noted last week we we're approaching this passage by making eight observations, eight observations that form and shape for us our thinking and about spiritual gifts. Now, you'll notice that we've not getting, gotten into issues of continuity or discontinuity with the first uh, the early church, whether we are a cessationist or non cessationist. That's really not what the focus of Peter's passage is here. And I don't want to get distracted in that. We are looking at the issue of gifts and spiritual giftedness, however, as that broad category of how God has equipped equipped each one of us to serve in his church. Now, I heard, uh, I think it was Friday evening, that when I said we had eight and we were going to try to get through it uh, last week, somebody whispered over to the side and said, he knows he's not going to get through eight. Uh, And that prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, We got through five, I think, five or six. Uh, But we will finish it up this morning. We'll try to, we'll finish it up this morning. But by way of reminder, let me go over what we covered last week. And so I'm just going to mention these briefly. The first thing we noticed is right there at the beginning of verse 10, as each one has received. And the first point was this, spiritual gifts are universal. Every Christian is gifted. There is no such thing as a Christian who has not been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in the church. There is no ungifted Christian. It simply doesn't exist. Every believer is uniquely gifted by our sovereign God to serve his body. And we connected that even to Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand. God has designed each believer to walk in good works to areas of the service to him. Even before he called us, they were prepared for us. So the first point is this, that spiritual gifts are universal. Every Christian is gifted. Secondly, spiritual gifts are a matter of grace. They are to be exercised with humility. They are to be exercised with humility. And again in verse 10, he says, As each one has received, it has received whatever giftedness God has given to any one of you, it is a matter of grace. It is something unmerited. It is an unmerited favor of God. It's part and parcel with his grace of salvation, his grace of redemption, which is far more than be forgiveness of sin. It is reconciliation to God. It is regeneration. It is union with Christ. It is in the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is being a part of his body, the church, and it is all received by grace, by grace. Whatever capacity he has given to you, the source for its exercise and even the origin of it is from God. So Paul said to the Corinthians in First. Corinthians 4, 6, what do you have that you have not received? And of course, he says that to them because there was that tendency for self-exaltation, for self-congratulations, for factions, going into groups, for a sense of preeminence among the body, and this sense of preeminence was causing division. And so he reminds them, what do you have that you have not received? In other words, whatever capacity for service God has given you leaves no room for boasting except for in the Lord and in his grace. Thirdly, we noted spiritual gifts are for the purpose of edification. They are for the building up of others and not ourselves. And so he says in verse 10, as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another. So whatever capacity you have from God is not for, again, any self-advancement. It is to serve the body. It is to sacrificially give up yourself to serve the body. The primary purpose of our giftedness is for others and not For ourselves. We have the joy of obedience. We have the joy of being a part of what God is doing in other people's life. And what God is doing in this world. And what God is doing in his church. And so we have that joy. But the end goal, the purpose, the trajectory of a spiritual gift is for the building up of others. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. So in his discussion on gifts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, at the end of that verse, let all things be done for edification. And so we looked at that. Fourthly, spiritual gifts are possessed as a stewardship. There is a stewardship. We are responsible and accountable for their use. And so again, he says in verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And to be a steward then has two other components to it. One, it means then that you are responsible to use your gift. And secondly, that you are accountable for the use of your gift. So God will hold each of us accountable for the use of our giftedness, what we did with the opportunities that he gave to us. And we consider that. And one passage that emphasizes this is, of course, Matthew 25, when he gave the talents and at the end of the master's journey, when he came back, each one was to give an accounting to him. And some increased what he entrusted to them, enter into the joy of your master. One did not, acted in unbelief, and he was held accountable for that as well. To put that in short form, Paul says in Romans fourteen twelve, each one of us will give an account of himself before God. Each one will give an account of himself before God. And so this idea of stewardship... A stewardship is that of having been entrusted for something by another to use faithfully and consistently with their desires, with their will. In our case, we have been entrusted with a gift, with a mercy by God. And we are stewards of that gift to use for the advancement of His kingdom and for His glory and for the service of others. And inasmuch as we fail to exercise that gift, we are robbing from Him who entrusted it to us, namely the Lord. And so we take service very seriously. It's very important. And so that's fourthly. Fifthly, we noted this. And this is as far as we got last week. Spiritual gifts are to be delighted in for their variety. The differences are the beauty and the usefulness of them. What gives a beauty to the church is that there's such variety that God has called together. Not only from every tribe, nation, and tongue, there's a beauty in that way, but the beauty of personality, the beauty of skills, the beauty of experiences, the beauty of culture, the beauty of all kinds of things that God has called together under Christ to work in harmony together in unity. And it is that working together in unity from diversity that brings out the beauty of God's intention and the gift. And so Paul, Paul calls on that in 1 Corinthians 12, just by way of reminder, where he says then the eye can't say, well, you know, I'm no good. I'm not an ear and the ear, the hand and the foot and so on and so forth. He says each one is necessary. And therefore, because there is a natural kind of honor that goes to any kind of speaking gift or upfront kind of gift, he says so that there will not be any disparity, we show more abundant honor on those members of the body which appear to be weaker. Because we want there to be an equality of honor, sharing in this goodness of God in his manifold grace. And that we saw, of course, at the end of verse 10. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let's pick it up here with number 6 in verse 11. And number 6 is this. Spiritual gifts are to be applied with diligence. Worked in the power of the Holy Spirit and the fear of God. Spiritual gifts are to be applied with diligence. Worked in the power of the Spirit and the fear of God. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, though he's just mentioned the manifold grace of God, the manifold ways, the varied ways in which God has gifted his church by the Spirit, and that we would get, just as a footnote here, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, the Spirit distributes these gifts under the sovereign will of God to the church, to function in the way that he has designed each one to function. But here in verse 11, Peter addresses this point by grouping all the gifts, all the manifold gifts, all the varied ways in which God has gifted his people under two broad categories, and that is gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. Gifts of speaking and gifts of serving, he says, whoever speaks and whoever serves. Let's take a look at each one of these in turn. First of all, then, speaking gifts. What do these include? Speaking gifts would include everything... From those that were evident in the first century church, uh, or more evident in the first century church, it would include, even as a matter of fact, he does include this specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, tongues, gifts of knowledge, prophecy, all of those kind of uh, sort of outward uh, miraculous kind of gifts. It also includes those which are more common throughout the history of the church, namely preaching, teaching, counseling, and evangelism. All of these related to communication of the word of God to others. I would want to make a, just a note here briefly that, it's, that speaking and teaching gifts are not merely teaching and speaking skills. Somebody can be unregenerate and be an excellent teacher. i always remember this one. Well, I won't go down that road. But uh, you've had excellent teachers in school who were in college, in high school or wherever. Uh, there's, that is an ability to teach that can be to all men that's a, it's a skill and a talent that, that many have that's not what he's equating to here what he's equating this to here to have a speaking gift a spiritual gift of speaking or teaching is a particular spirit enabled ability to communicate spiritual truth effectively to communicate scripture to communicate those things that are directly to the building up of the body of Christ now there are some ways that we need to think through this then. Any giftedness that places one in a position of communicating scripture to make it understood and apply to life has the gift of speaking. A speaking gift. However, in one sense, we're all called to communicate the truth of scripture. Every one of us is called to communicate the truth of scriptures to others. Within your home, at the workplace, your neighbors... Within the church, even as we would encourage one another, in school, with friends, and so on. All of us are to be able to communicate Scripture. How would we evangelize anybody if we can't communicate Scripture? How would we have any kind of witness to them and being able to answer their questions and so on and so forth? How does a mom teach her children? How does a father instruct his children if he's not teaching them? So everybody is required broadly to speak Scripture and to be able to communicate Scripture. And it's true as well, however, that within this, for many believers, the Spirit will aid in enabling a person to communicate Scripture clearly in any particular situation. So every believer, broadly, has had the experience of maybe being in an evangelistic or situation where you're talking to somebody about the gospel, and just it becomes clear in your mind truths. And you're like, where did that come from? You have insight, you remember verses, you're able to put things together in a way with such clarity that it's almost like you with that person are outside of yourself observing what the Spirit is doing and you're just going, wow. Many believers have that who don't necessarily have the gift of speaking but but have experienced that ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can think of a parent with their children. Uh, I'm not sure what to say and then you go to them, you pray, and the Spirit gives you what to say and enables you to communicate Scripture clearly to them. So that is a common experience to all. However, the gift of teaching in its many manifestations has a few particular marks to it. And let me just suggest to you four. One is this. How do you know that if you have the gift of teaching? Or what sets that apart? One, the Holy Spirit prompts you most often to this kind of interaction within the church in various relationships and contexts. It means that most often you find yourself connecting to others relating to a situation in the role of communicating scripture that's the broadest way to put that that you find that you are prompted most often to speak scripture to explain scripture Two, that the spirit providentially leads you to situations in which teaching in some capacity is a requirement of you You find yourself being asked to explain things most often, asked to teach a Bible study, asked for counseling, asked for something that relates to the effective communication of the Word of God. And you find that you are providentially led into those situations and that you feel connected to them. In other words, what you're required to do connects with what you desire to do, with what you feel to a large measure comfortable doing. Three, so first is that the Holy Spirit prompts you most often to that. Provident to lead you to situations in which teaching is required. Three is that there is more ready ability to understand Scripture. Somebody with the gift of teaching has this working of the Spirit within them that seems to give them an ability to understand and have insight into Scripture. Uh, Not that all don't have that, but it is something unique to those who have this gift of teaching. And fourthly, lastly, the Spirit gives a measure of fruit from teaching. That you can see in this communication of scripture that you often find yourself prompted to do and situations to do, that you see a a sort of consistency and insight and ability to put things together, that you also see a certain fruit of your teaching. Now that fruit obviously is measured out to each individual. Some it's large, some it's small. I remember there was a chapel session one time in seminary, and the professor gave this illustration. There was this guy in a a class, and uh, I'm called to preach. I'm called to preach. Professor, I'm called to preach. And he kept being counseled like, I, I you know, I, I don't think that you're really called to preach. I don't really think that's the ministry that the Spirit has called. You know, I want to be in seminary. The Lord has called me to preach. And so finally, a, a bit exasperated, the seminary professor said to this eager student, well, you may be called to preach, but I don't think anybody's called to listen. <laughs> Which was a helpful rebuke. But anyway, so the point of that is simply to say this, that there is in, if with the gift of teaching, also a certain measure of fruitfulness that comes along with it, that you see some regular effectiveness with it. Now, as we say that, however, there are also different flavors within the same speaking gift or within the gift of speaking. One author captures this well. Let me quote. Two believers may have the gift of teaching, but each will demonstrate it with a unique blend of grace and faith. That provides for edifying and useful spiritual diversity within the church. One leader's preaching may emphasize the showing of mercy and gentleness, whereas another's may emphasize the discerning of truths and another's the wisdom in its application. That's just a a simple way to say that, again, even with any one gift, there is a diversity in the way that it is manifest within the church. Different teachers have different styles and different emphases. It does not make one teacher better or worse, or right or wrong, only different. Sometimes we can be like the Corinthians and, and gather around a particular teacher, and that becomes the only way that the gift of teaching is to be communicated, or the best way. So you can think of common examples among us, both in contemporary. If you listen to Charles Swindoll, he's very applicational. Very applicational. If somebody listens to MacArthur, he's very didactic. He's very teaching. If somebody listens to Piper, while there's teaching, he's very emotional. He's very emotive in what he's trying to draw out and impact in his preaching. If you listen or read Spurgeon, he was very evangelistic, very evangelistic, and he was always appealing on a basis of evangelism. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, he was uh, very logical and analytical in his preaching, not a whole lot of emotion. All of these are different, and there's so many other varieties as well. One is not right and one is not wrong. One is not better and one is not worse. Each is different with the gift of teaching. Each has a different role uh, to play. And so the only measure of how we evaluate a teacher is not their style and not even how great a fruit they might have or any of those things. The measure of how we evaluate a teacher is their faithfulness to scripture. That's it. Are they faithful to Scripture? Are they faithful to the meaning of Scripture? If they are, then we rejoice in that gift of teaching. Whether we connect with that particular person or not, or so on. The issue is, when we evaluate, is only faithfulness to Scripture. And I want to give one example of this, too. This works out well with elders, this idea. The distinguishing qualification of an elder is what? 1 Timothy 3, that he be able to teach. And when I say distinguishing, what distinguishes the office of eldership from the office of deacon? It is that the elder is able to teach. He's able to communicate Scripture effectively. In Titus 1 9, it says this that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. In summary, it means that the elder is one who demonstrates the ability to effectively communicate, apply, and defend Scripture. The elder is one who can communicate, apply, and defend Scripture. That's what marks off that ability to, uh, that qualification of able to teach. However, this takes on a variety of forms. For example, the teaching of one elder may be in the context of preaching, of proclamation in that way. Another may be that their strength is in counseling, in discipling, in coming along other believers and helping them to mature in Christ. Another might be in a kind of application in individual lives and a, a wisdom that's drawn from scripture and so on. So it's not that every elder who is able to teach has the same kind of ability to teach. They all communicate scripture effectively. All should be able to defend sound doctrine and so forth. But there are within elder boards those who have different emphases and particular qualities. So there's a variety of ways that the gift is present. And it's not just in elders. Women teaching women and children. Bible study leaders and on down the list. Anywhere there is a ministry of teaching. It is a giftedness of the spirit to communicate scripture. Now in whatever. and it's, So that's sort of the manifold way of speaking. Manifold uh, gift of God. and Grace of God in speaking. In whatever capacity. In whatever situation however. That one is called to speak, it is to do, as Paul says here, or Peter at the second part, whoever speaks then is to do one who is speaking the utterances of God. And this is the manner of how, if you do have that speaking gift, of how it is to be approached. The utterances of God. We won't turn to these passages, but in Acts 7.38, Romans 3.2, it's the same term there, and it's translated as the oracles of God. The oracles of God, both there, referring to a direct message of God to his people in the Old Testament. It is a word of God. It focuses on the content of what is communicated. You are to speak as though your message is that which is God's message. It's not your message. It doesn't originate with you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. And we are to speak it in that manner. It means then that when we speak the word of God, we are to speak it with seriousness, with reverence, and with faithfulness. That corresponds to the reality, again, that these are not your words, but the words of the living God. You are a steward of his words. A steward of his words. Not an inventor of them, but a steward of them. It's God breathed scripture through which God speaks to his church. It is through scripture that we hear the voice of Christ, as he says in John 10. Paul caught this when he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, speaking to the church at Thessalonica, for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, how did you receive the word of God? In this case, through his apostolic ministry, his going and preaching to that church, his laying a foundation for them as an apostle, he says, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its work in you. The word preached was the word of God. Now this has several implications, and I'm going to have to mention these. I'm just going to mention them. We're not going to spend time on them. But let me, let me just give certain characteristics of it, and, uh, four. One is this. It means that when we speak God's word, if you have a speaking gift that it is to be done with God's authority. God's authority. We are not to speak God's word as suggestions, as one option among many, but as the word of the living God. Paul says to Titus in 2.15, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. It's not your words you speak, Titus, it is God's word. It's not your authority, Titus, it is God's authority. And you as his messenger are coming in his authority and are to speak appropriately to that authority. Now, let me make the note here, to speak with authority does not mean authoritarian. It's not a personal authority where somebody yields their own sort of influence and authority in a way that you're obeying them rather than obeying Christ. It is as a servant of Christ that you speak with Christ's authority that you might teach people to obey him, to follow him, to love him, and to serve him. It's not a personal kind of authority. It's an authority related directly to the word of God. Let me give you one illustration of this in Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm just going to mention this. He's speaking to the Thessalonians, and Paul says this. In verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, You know what commandments we gave you, uh, implication by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And he talks about sanctification, and particularly uh, sexual purity. And he says, This is the will of God. And after he gives them instruction, he says this For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, he who rejects this is not rejecting man. In other words, you're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting a man. That's all I am. He says, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's saying, look, you can reject my authority as an apostle, but you are not. It's not me that you're rejecting if you do not follow these instructions. But these are the instructions of the Lord. You're you're disobeying the Lord. And so it is an authority that Paul had, but he made clear to say it's not his authority, it is Christ's authority. It is not the power of his own words, but it is his words inasmuch as they are reflective and given as the words of God who called him to be an apostle. Number two, it means that God's word then is to be studied carefully. It is to be studied carefully. You don't come if you have a speaking gift. It's not that you show up so you can give all of the neat ideas in the way that God has touched your heart that week or that night. You've maybe been in sermons like this. I've been in one. It always stands out to me is the guy came up and he actually began the message this way. Like, oh, you know, I, just, I was preaching tonight. I didn't know what to preach. You know, I was thinking about it all week. Still couldn't figure it out. You know, yesterday I was kind of up, I just didn't know, and this afternoon I'm still wrestling, and finally, you know, it came to me. And the first thought that came to my mind, if you didn't get it until a few hours ago, you shouldn't be standing there in the pulpit. You're not prepared to do so, and his message reflected that lack of preparedness. In this particular case, I simply noted, as he's preaching this sermon, he gave, I don't know how many cross-references, and almost every single one was taken out of context. I just kept thinking to myself, "Mm, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, That's not what he means there. It's not that they weren't true things generally, but they were true things attached to the wrong text. And that is then a way of adulterating, a way of diminishing the authority of Scripture. And so whoever speaks is to be someone who is a careful student of the word of God, as best as you can be. So Paul tells Timothy in this capacity, Be diligent to present, well, let me go up, Remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. In other words, things that aren't directly related to that, which will be edifying. Verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Again, this connects with the ability in terms of eldership to defend sound doctrine. In other words, if you are one who has the gift of speaking, you need to do your best to the best of your capacity and opportunity to be a good student of the Word of God, to know how to handle it accurately. We have a group of men who are desiring to do that as well, who are going to go through some hermeneutics. We do that sometimes in our Saturday study. If you speak, then you need to speak accurately. Remember, you are a steward of God's words. You are not an inventor of truth. It's not what impression you get. It's not the ideas that you have. It's not the latest thing that's come to you. You are to be a faithful communicator of God's words. Uh, Thirdly, it means then that we are to apply his word diligently. Apply his word diligently. So we speak it with authority, his authority. We study it carefully because it's his words, not ours. We apply it diligently to our own lives and to others. me just mention. It, it says in 1 Timothy 4, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. What does he mean by that? simply this that as one who is communicating God's Word, who is teaching them sound doctrine, which began the chapter, or this little section here, in reputation of the doctrine of demons, that it, by his own term, the doctrine of demons that had infiltrated the church, he says, you instead are to be one who is marked by growth, both in knowledge, understanding, and holiness of life. And as you do that, as you handle God's words faithfully, as you handle the truth faithfully, and as you communicate the truth faithfully, that is how the Spirit of God. God puts protection within his people and prevents error from coming in and corrupting the church. We won't turn there, but he says something similar to that idea in Acts chapter 20. He says, some among you are going to rise up, wolves who are among the church. But he says, you take, you take pains with these things. And as you are progressing in them and you are teaching the people, you are, you are a means of God's protecting them in the truth and protecting them from error. Also very similar to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. We won't turn there. He says, so we're not to be like children tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine. Oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds good. I believe this today. I believe this over there. Paul says, don't be immature in your thinking. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. We are to learn and be growing in discernment. And discernment. So if you speak God's word, then we should be growing in skill, knowledge, and holiness. Lastly, fourth, it means if you speak God's word, it is to be spoken then with integrity. It's to be spoken with integrity. Let me give you just one mention of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, and again, he's, he's uh, addressing here, the context here is of false teachers who had come into the Corinthian church. He talks about them again, the super apostles of 2 Corinthians 11. And these were not only themselves perverting the word of God by wrong motives, and even with their teaching, which he calls them, by the way, in Second Corinthians 11, you'll remember, workers of Satan. But he says this, they also were accusing the Apostle Paul. And so he says this in defense of himself. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards, there's the idea again, stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. To me, it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not examine myself. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, Paul lived his life and his ministry as being examined and accountable only to the Lord. And he says this is his testimony, is a clear conscience. He says we are not like men peddling the word of God. But as with sincerity and as with truth, we speak in the sight of God and of men. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, let my life and let my message be the validation of my ministry. These accusations can come, but they will roll off me like the water on a duck's back because I know what is true. And you know what is true. And he says, my ministry will be its own testimony. And so if you speak the word of God, the point here is simply this, that we are to speak it then with integrity. Our motives are for edification, not for personal glory and gain not for personal glory and gain, not so that we might receive admiration of others or be exalted, but that they might be built up and Christ might be glorified. And the true joy of a true teacher is to see the fruit of the word taking hold in people's lives. So in whatever capacity God calls you to teach, speak, or whatever, it should be marked by these. Let me move on quickly to the last one here, to serving. I know there's more to be said there. Serving, He says, secondly, so whoever speaks, then he says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Whoever's serving by the strength which God supplies. Serving glyphs include every kind of service, giving, helping, encouraging, comforting, using a specific skill for the good of another or the church, being sensitive to the spiritual, emotional, and physical needs of others, seeing any need and using time, resources, and talents that you have to meet it, all of those fit under serving. One helpfully said this, it probably covers all those deeds on Christ, uh, a Christian does for another. Administration, care of the poor and sick, including contributing funds, distributing funds, physical care, healing, and similar acts that express God's love and mercy in concrete form. So this is another way of saying that serving is all acts of service, all acts of ministering grace and mercy to someone else. And as with teaching, however, we're all called to serve. So all are called to communicate. So there's a distinction between what is a general command for everybody and what is a particular manifestation of the giftedness of the Spirit. In the same way it is with serving. So Paul says to the Galatians, you You were called to freedom, brethren. That is freedom from the law, freedom from the tutelage of the Mosaic law, and so forth, freedom into the glory of life in Christ. You're called the freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that goes to every believer. Through love serve one another. The gifts of, so serving itself does not require giftedness. And I'm going to emphasize that again later. Serving does not require giftedness uh, in its broadest, broadest application. The gifts of serving, however, are unique Spirit-motivated and enabled capacities and opportunities to meet various needs within the church. Giftedness in this area, similar to speaking and teaching, is when you find your role within the body as meeting needs, supporting others as the most natural fit. You find the most natural fit within the body is some area of serving. It's not in leading. It's not necessarily in teaching. It's not in counseling and all of those things. But you find it in areas of service. This is the application many times of a particular skill or ability. Somebody has experience, skills, and abilities in construction, in music, in accounting and finances, organization, even decorating and making things beautiful, mechanics, medical Knowledge, whatever it is saying when there's those skills are applied to the service of the church, to the ministry of the church. So it's not so much that in terms of spiritual giftedness, it's not so much that somebody is gifted in music. There's a lot of people who have talent in music and are gifted in that sense. They have no love for Christ at all. They may hate him. That, that's not the point. It, it is to say that when somebody has a particular skill that God, yes, has given them, but it's a spiritual gift uh, of serving when that skill is used to the building up of the body of Christ. It's used for edification within the church. So when somebody's up here and they have an ability, a musical ability, the giftedness of service is that I'm giving up my time, I'm giving up my, uh, uh, my effort to serve the church, to lead, in this case, in music, a worship and song. Worship and song. So that's the idea. Now, I want to make note here that within this category, there's also, you know, the particular subgroup that hold to an office of service, and that is the deacon, the deacon. And there's a lot to say here, but the same root for the word what we have is the office of deacon, as you well know, many of you, is to serve. Now, I'm going to, again, just mention this quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but this is worthy to know. So is everybody a deacon if they're serving? Well, no. No. Everybody is not a deacon. It is a particular office laid aside in 1 Timothy 3, 3 next to elders, although given much less attention as an office within the New Testament. It's really kind of wide left open. There's only a few places where they're even mentioned. The beginning of Philippians 1, the office is mentioned specifically, and then possibly it's mentioned with Phoebe in Romans 16, 1 and other places. But outside of that, there's really not a lot in the New Testament that speaks to the office. However, the office is mentioned in First Timothy 3, Three eight through thirteen. We won't turn there, but you, the office of deacon, as with elders, requires a high standard of Christian character. In other words, it's a position held by those who demonstrate a certain maturity in the Christian faith. Who demonstrate a certain maturity in the Christian faith. So it's not the believer who's a day old in the Lord and is already serving somewhere is not a deacon. They're not a deacon. They're not yet proven in that way. They're not uh, called to that. So he says in First Timothy three, uh, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine, fond of sordid gain, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must first be tested. So we're talking about a certain kind of maturity, a kind of belief, a kind of faith that has faced adversity at some level, has been tested, and is shown to be genuine and maturing. Let it first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So there is then the office of deacon. It requires a high standard of Christian character, but it's distinct from elders in this sense. It does not require the gift of teaching. Therefore, the office of deacon does not have inherent in the office the spiritual authority that comes with the ministry of the word as it is with an elder. And we'll get to that in 1 Peter chapter 5 down the road. Therefore, spiritual authority related to the word is not inherent to the office, and therefore we would hold can be held by women. There are deaconesses. That's another discussion, and that's a debatable point. But that's where we would hold, particularly gathering that from verse eleven. Women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, the prototype of a deacon, however, is seen in Acts chapter six and. If you're, maybe you wouldn't remember the reference, but Acts chapter 6 is the account, the first few verses, of dissension that had grown up among Jewish believers in the early church. And it had to do with the issue of food, the distribution of food. Uh, As they were increasing, a number of complaints arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Those were Jews who had uh, adopted or taken on uh, Greek culture, even in many cases Greek language and so forth and against the native Hebrews. These were Jews who were uh, primarily in Judah, around Jerusalem, who spoke Hebrew and who had rejected any of the influences of Greek culture and so forth. And so here you have these two people. They did not naturally fit, and now there is conflict that had risen up. And what was the conflict? Their widows were being overlooked in, in the daily serving of food. So the primary so they, then seven men are called, seven men who were gifted by the Spirit. Their hands were laid on to them by the apostles, identifying them as the chosen ones. They were chosen from among the congregation. And then they were to deal with this issue. And they were to deal with this issue, he says, in verse 4, after saying, Look, it's not that we're above as apostles, as leaders here. We're not above serving tables. It's not a matter of value of that. It's a matter of that's not what we've been called to. And he says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they applied that, those ministries and the church began to grow. Now those were not technically deacons. The office was not yet developed at that point. However, that is a prototype of what the relationship between deacons and elders would be that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and other places. So the primary overarching role of the deacon is to care for the needs of the body personal ministry and gatherings which would include facilities in a way that frees elders to carry out the ministry of teaching and shepherding that's the basic idea of the office now all that said everybody and every christian in this room falls into one of those categories so if you are here and you are a believer in jesus christ and you are indwelled by the holy spirit you are in union with him you are a part of the body of christ not merely externally, but in truth, you have a gift related to the category of speaking or to the category of serving. And that means then, uh, again in in broad exhortation, that you should be involved in the church in some way at that level, some way in speaking and teaching and counseling and discipling or in serving in some manner. So everybody falls into that category. Now, some answer to this question. Now, how do we know what our giftedness is, however? Well, I've already hinted at it. Some answer this question by taking an evaluation test. Has anybody ever taken one of those, a spiritual evaluation test, what your giftedness is? Those are floating around sometimes. And some people are legitimately helped by those. Some people are legitimately helped by those. I personally don't find them very helpful uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'll, I'll mention a couple. One is that we have a variety and a combination of gifts. It's not like we only have one gift. It's a beautiful mosaic. It's a beautiful picture of how the Holy Spirit weaves together a variety of gifts in each individual, a variety of opportunities, a variety of ways that it's worked out through their own experience and personality that they serve in the church. And so you don't want to atomize it too much and start going, this gift, this gift, I have this and don't. And that leads to the second reason why I would at least caution sometimes on those because to identify a particular gift, to take this and go, okay, here's here's the areas of giftedness, uh, it can lead someone away from a general heart of service. It can lead away from a general heart of service. What do I mean by that? Well, if somebody has the gift of teaching and speaking uh, and there's a need to set up tables or help with children or take out the trash, it can create the attitude that sees and hears of the need that says, well, you know, I'm sorry, I, I do realize that, you need help in children's ministry. I do realize that somebody needs to wash the dishes after we have a fellowship dinner. I do realize that somebody needs to take out the trash or clean something up. But my gift is in teaching. I have a speaking gift. I wouldn't want to come over here and distract myself with a lesser thing. And sometimes it can be that kind of attitude. And, and that's not that helpful. There can develop a very narrow view of service. And granted, each person cannot do everything, but we should always be willing and ready to do what we can. And again, we see an example of that even in Acts six. It's not that we're unwilling. It's not that we're above it. It's that that's not what we're called to. And so, it's not helpful to the church if we're doing something not what we're called to. But there is to be a general attitude of service. So, how do we discover our giftedness? How do we discover our giftedness? And I would answer it this way: Don't worry about discovering your spiritual gift, your specific gift. And just start serving wherever, whenever, and however you are able. To not do anything because of uncertainty. If so, if somebody sits back and goes, well, I'm just not serving because I, just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get involved. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Now, that is the worst possible option. A person will never know where God wants them to serve if they just sit on the sidelines waiting for something to fall into their lap. So what are you to do? What are you to do? Let me mention just three things quickly here. In terms of knowing what your spiritual gift is. The first thing is this, is you, you just need to show up. You just need to show up to the church. He says in Hebrews 10, don't neglect the fellowshipping, the gathering together. So show up. So church, don't make church an option. Don't make the gathering of God's people an option that you can easily set aside. You need to actually be here. You need to be actually and actually be here. Secondly, you need to being here, get involved and do not be a spiritual couch potato. Or an armchair quarterback. You know, the armchair quarterback sits in their comfortable recliner with some Doritos and a Pepsi or whatever it is that you have there. Neither of those are appealing to me, but, you know, it's on the commercials. So you're sitting there watching and, oh, why'd he do that? That guy's an idiot. You know, he threw the ball. or didn't even see him coming. And, of course, you know, the quarterback wants to go. You get down here with, you know, 280-pound guys wanting to knock your head off and see who you see running down the field. Uh, In other words, you're not in this situation. It's easy from a camera flying over the field to see what's going on and what you would do. So, the same thing can be true if we're not involved. We can kind of sit back and criticize the things that are being done, but we have no personal investment in it. And so, we don't want to do that. So, the first thing to do is show up. The second thing to do is to get involved and to get involved with an attitude not only of what you receive from the encouragement, but also what you can do, to have a doing attitude. Third is to have the mindset to start looking for ways to serve others, to build others up, to be available and willing to help wherever there is a need and not leave it to someone else or assume someone else will get it taken care of. Ask if there are needs help cleaning up after a meal, doing a project and so on and so forth. And what will happen is as you give yourself over to the Lord and you give yourself over to serving and meeting needs generally, the Spirit of God is involved in the kind of opportunities that come your way, the areas where you see particular success, and the kind of things that give you a particular kind of joy. And in that, you will be led to those areas of giftedness and how the Spirit wants to use you within the body. So the general idea is just start serving. Do something. Do something, pray and ask the Lord and find out where it is that he would have you serve within his church. That's how you'll discover what your giftedness is. God doesn't want this to be a big uh, whack-a-mole kind of contest where you're just trying to figure out what it is and you do something. You go, oh, I guess that's not it. I better jump over here, jump over there. Just, just be involved is the idea. Uh, God will lead you. Lastly here, do it in the strength with God's supplies. We are to serve because God gives us the strength to serve. You're going to be very surprised, but we have two more that we did not get to. Namely, that spiritual gifts should have the fragrance of love. And let me just mention them here. If you're the spiritual gifts, the right use of our spiritual gifts is that they are done in love. So if you read 1 Corinthians 13, that comes in the midst of a discussion of spiritual gifts. It means our spiritual gifts are, are to be characterized by the flavor of patience, kindness, long-suffering, believing the best about those that we serve, hoping the best about those that we serve, not being critical, not being impatient. It is to have the marks of love and endurance. And if we do anything without love, then it is of no profit. And lastly, let me just note here this, that spiritual gifts have the singular goal of God's glory. And that's really why I gave that quote by Ford at the beginning. Is that when we're all working together towards that singular end of the glory of God. That singular end of serving Christ. Then there is a joy. There is a harmony. There is a loveliness. There is a beauty. And there is a delightfulness to our being together. There is a maturing that takes place in our lives individually and as a body. There is a a building up of one another. A kind of comfort and a kind of beautiful witness to the world of a demonstration of the life of Christ in us as we're doing these things in love and into the glory of God. And that's ultimately the end of all things. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. And so that's the end to which we aim. With that, let me... So my encouragement to you from Peter's words there is... If you're serving, keep serving. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Persevere. If you're not serving, start serving. Find an area. If you don't know what your giftedness is, just start doing something and see where the Spirit of God leads you in service within His church. Let me pray, and then John will lead us in a closing hymn. Father, thank You for Your gift of the Spirit, which, O Christ, Your Word tells us that You received after Your ascension to the Father, after the completion of Your work, as Redeemer, and that that is what was poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost. And part of that great ministry that we have in the new covenant is this promise that each one of us is uniquely gifted to serve in your church. May we lay hold of that great privilege and opportunity, and would you lead us and guide us into how we can best serve you within the church, and may all that we do be a reflection of our trust in you who died and rose again and be characterized by the flavor of love, even the love that you show to us. And it is to that end we pray, in your name, Jesus, amen.